Welcome to Between the Before and After, a podcast about the stories that shape us. I'm your host, Coach John McLernan, and each episode, I bring you an inspiring guest with a moving story that shines a light on the power of the human spirit. Before we dive in, I want to let you know about two very important things. Number one, the stories shared here are often gritty, raw, and vulnerable, and very likely will include speaking about sensitive topics suited for a mature audience. Number two, this podcast is also broadcast live on YouTube, Twitch, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. So on whatever platform you follow myself or Freedom Nutrition Coaching, you have the opportunity to participate in this discussion. You can comment on the live stream, and we encourage your participation both by commenting and asking questions. So this podcast is about exploring the stories that take place between the before and after photos, not just in the realm of weight loss, but in all areas of life. So let's dive in. All right, welcome back to another episode of Between the Before and After. Um, I always say this, but I'm very excited for our guest today because I love having these conversations in these podcasts. And uh, Dan Junkins has quite a remarkable story dating back to 2017 when he got a diagnosis that changed his life. But I want to give you a chance to, to give us an overview in your words rather than me trying to share them. So welcome to the show, Dan, and let us know what, what, where did your, this, uh, let's say this chapter of your story begin? John, thank you so much for having me on today. Um, so I'll just jump right into um, what happened back in 2017. Um, I was living in Boston with my wife and our two cats. Um, and uh, I literally had a week's worth of what I thought was the flu. Um, okay. And Jana basically encouraged me to, to go to a doctor. Um, and so I did. I was convinced I had the flu. The Boston Globe had mentioned something about another flu epidemic and uh, went to the doctor. And the first thing he said to me was, we need to get a blood test. You are okay. white as a ghost. So um, I gave him a sample of my blood, went back home, went to bed, and actually got up the next morning actually feeling really good. It's probably that that moment when you go to a doctor, you're like, oh, I feel so much better now. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, I got up the next morning and literally got a phone call from the blood lab head technician himself. And yeah. he basically said, you need to get to an ER right now. I've never seen blood levels so low in my life. Okay. So I went. And so Jana and I went to the hospital about a mile away and the nurses and doctors um, came around. They just said, we think this is leukemia. Is there a history in your family? And I was just Shock, in shock, stunned, speechless, frozen. I, there were no words going through my head at that yeah. time. So yeah. within, a, within a day, I was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia in April of 2017 um, with just weeks left to live. Wow. And so pr prior to this, um, had, had was there any indication that something might be off or were you just kind of living life as normal and there were no clues? Or, or looking back now, do you see that there were some things that maybe slipped in under the radar? Um, you know, looking back, uh, that initial week prior was sort of the blooming of the um, what ended up being the diagnosis for leukemia. But I had noticed in the weeks prior and the months prior, I could hear like something in my inner ear, what sounded like the ocean. And I just thought, well, that's just, you know, me being tired and, and fatigued. I sort of brushed it off. Yeah. Uh, but I think that may have been the, the first 
inklings of what ended up becoming um, acute myeloid leukemia. So this is really, really interesting because, and I think this is well documented in in, in medical literature, particularly men will maybe feel slightly off, but we tend to dismiss it and say it's not worth checking out. It's probably not a big deal. Uh, and maybe it's it's also being a part of human psychology. We don't really want our mind to go to these places to consider the possibility. Um, do you do you feel like that was that was happening in in a case like this? Yes, of course. I, I you know I was both my wife and I were actually in a situation where we did not have health insurance. We were doing okay. everything we were doing everything that we could to be as healthy as possible. So we were eating a, a raw vegan diet. Um, we were about 60% raw. We would have a cooked dinner, but we were, you know, I, I don't smoke. I am long distance runner. I do yoga. Um, I was doing what I thought was everything you could possibly do to be a healthy person. But I think that we all realize that you can be as healthy as possible and life will still throw you uh, a left uppercut and you don't know that it's coming. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, is, regardless of how we try to live in, in extremely healthy fashion, we're trying to give ourselves the best shot at this, right. the best shot at long and healthy life. But there's no guarantees because we live, we live in an environment where we're exposed to, you know, we're exposed to carcinogens on a regular basis. We're exposed to stress on a regular basis. We're exposed to, you know, maybe electromagnetic frequencies even if we don't fully understand how that affects us. Um, so there's so many factors that are really outside our control if we want to exist in this modern world, which most people aren't ready to go and live off the grid in a cabin in the woods kind of thing. And so, pardon me. And so you said you you were doing like what you f- uh, felt was like living a really, really healthy life. Now, I wanted to ask a little bit about the long distance running because I'm kind of curious about this because we look at distance runners and say like, wow, they're probably exceptionally healthy. And I, and I would think, well, you're exceptionally physically fit or capable in order to be able to carry out that. But is there an element of this could have been stressing your body? It, it like Because all exercise is a form of stress, even if by and large is a positive stress. Could this practice have been contributing to it in terms of just uh, maybe inhibiting your, your capacity to fully recover from things, but in a subtle enough way that it wasn't, you know, it's just gradually happening over the years? I don't know about that. I think that there was some... Um... I think there was it was more of an, an emotional and psychological phenomenon that was going on for me. Okay. Uh, it, in a sense, I was in a job that was basically staring at a computer and on the phone. I was a general manager and a sales manager for a contracting firm. And I really had given up on the idea yeah. of being a writer. And I really didn't okay. think that I could be one because my father was a very successful writer. My mother was a very successful artist. I'd always loved being around the arts um, growing up, but I just never thought I could be like my parents. So I had kind of psychologically and emotionally given up. Now, I'm not saying that that was the main reason for getting the leukemia, Mm -hmm. but there's, um, I think there's certain phenomena that does occur within our bodies that will react in a particular way with the whole psychological, um, set up an environment that we're operating inside of sometimes. But I also think, I also yeah. think also that that was working in conjunction with the fact that the contracting firm was a chimney sweep company. And I had been a chimney sweep for a few years prior before coming in doing what the white collar work, so to speak. Right, right, right. Well, I, uh, two, two things. Cause of course I'm like, Oh man, this is interesting. Cause chimney yeah. sweeping is still a thing. 
Like mm-hmm. that in itself is interesting, you know, because when it, we hear chimney sweep, we think of, I mean, like all, I think Oliver Twist, maybe it is, or. You all, we, we all think the, the, that sort of uh, ideology of, of the little, the boy going up the chimney, cleaning the fireplace, but there's actually a niche market where the chimney sweeps are called in for gas heating systems, oil heating systems, because they're all venting up chimneys. Right, so, right. And we're sort of the experts on how these heating systems vent. How's the best way they should exhaust out of buildings? So right. we get called a lot for questions and issues like that. But we're getting exposed to a lot of toxic materials as we do that. Yeah, because... So, I would think even if you take uh, a lot of the safety or precautionary measures, um, maybe you're just getting absorb, you know, absorption through the skin. Uh, masks don't seal perfectly. Uh, maybe if your eyes aren't, you know, perfectly covered, you know, the so on. And it's, I mean, of course, we're splitting hairs and, and speculating, but we look at like all these different factors and go. I think the conclusion that like it's unless you live in a hermetically sealed world, which is I think <laughs> no way to exist in life. It's it's nearly impossible to avoid exposure to all of these things, and yes. so. Uh, so you, you get the diagnosis and actually I want to, I want to st- take one step back because you touched on another really salient point, And that was this connection between our emotional and our mental health and our physical mm-hmm. health, because I do believe we're starting to understand it better, but it still is really this, uh, kind of nebulous terrain. We don't fully understand. And maybe because we can't put it in a jar and measure it, mm-hmm. it's, it's really hard for the medical field to adopt a stance where this, this should be a really important element of, of examining a person's whole health. Yes. Um, you know, science is great at basically examining the small parts to gain a better understanding of the larger whole. Um, but that doesn't always necessarily solve everything or resolve the issues that may be going through for people. Um, I had an intriguing moment where the night before I was going to receive what they call what they told me was the strongest chemotherapy protocol that's prescribed in the cancer world um, where I found this um, mantra it literally just came into my head I don't know if it's out of inspiration or my own background growing up my mother and father telling me stories but I was always like fascinated with inspired stories. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember this mantra came into my head and the mantra said, dive into uncertainty with courage and surround everyone with love. And it's sort of been my, my guiding, guiding light ever since. Now, what causes words to like that, to enter our minds like that? Yeah. It's, it's a, an amalgam. It's a mix of, of everything. It's a mystery that, you know, I don't think anyone can really understand, but there are moments of inspiration that occur with all of us. And I think that when we can be really tuned in and really stay aware, I think that they can shift one's life fundamentally. And that for me was a huge shift. Um, yeah. So dive, dive into uncertainty with courage and yes. surround everyone around you with love. Yes. That's beautiful. Yeah. I love, yeah. I love that. Especially the first part. I mean, it's, it's all beautiful, but I love that, that idea dive into uncertainty with courage, because I think one of the strongest sort of base human desires is to try and live with a degree of certainty and, and surround ourselves with as much security as possible. It's a sort of primal survivalistic drive that we have. And yet the reality of the human existence, it is so unpredictable, so uncertain. And really at the end of the day, it's rather fleeting in the grand scheme. You know, I think of history existing for thousands upon thousands of years you know, what is 80 years in a thousand? 
It's it's a it's a nugget. You know, it's a, <laughs> a minuscule like sand. You know, piece of sand in the in the universe, right? Um, yeah. And for me, it it was it it resonated only because that's the whole goal of science is to gain some kind of assurance, some kind of understanding, some kind of certainty, some kind of normality, you know? Um, And I think that we have to sometimes release ourselves from that to gain some kind of psychological and mental and and emotional ease, so to speak, when one can sort of let go of that and just be. And that for me was a, was a huge moment. Um, so it allowed me to discover a story which really became sort of my guiding, um, you could call it, you know, sp- spirit animal, whatever. Sure. Yeah, yeah. It was, a, it was a story about peacocks. And yeah. I didn't know about it, but I remember hearing about it years earlier and I looked it up on the internet and I found out peacocks were actually guard animals for the great ancient kings and queens in, in India and in Tibet to guard against King Cobra's snakes and they, cause they killed them and they eat them. Yeah. And basically the story and, it, and the story basically was about that peacocks can eat poison and actually gain sustenance and create these beautiful colors. So I decided I would be a peacock during my yeah, therapy. Yeah. Well, I, I love that. And we're going to dive more into that um, in, in just a moment here, because you've written a whole story about it. And I think I titled this broadcast Peacocks and Poison. You know, this is Dan's story, <laughs> something along those lines. But so well, I want to zoom into this, this, you know, you get this diagnosis or so you get this call, like we need to see you, you know, blood levels like are extremely low. So your, your blood is looking extremely depleted. Um, what's what's kind of running through your head as you're, you're heading back to uh, the hospital or to the clinic to, see, you know, to, to look for some further answers. Well, I actually never left the hospital. Um, okay. They told me that I really, sh- they asked me that I stay. Okay. And, yeah. Um, because it was a learning hospital, they actually were speaking in a different way than most other hospitals in the sense that they were talking to me like a partner, not like they were dictating to me, which yeah. really resonated with me quite deeply. Their language was in a way like they wanted to collaborate, work with me. And I felt like, I don't know. It just, there was this inherent trust that built up very quickly over these conversations and the way they were asking for permission constantly. And I just felt so much in better hands, so to speak, as yeah. opposed to like, you got to do this, this, and this. And if you don't, you're going to die, you know, which right, is right. A normal operating sort of procedure that you usually experience in, in environments like that. So yeah. for me, it was powerful to sort of gain that trust so quickly, but I really just sort of listened to them and just said, I'm in your hands. I trust you guys. You're doing good, you know? Yeah. yeah. And and th- this is really like something quite remarkable. Um, and you now, of course, have a very intimate and inside look at, could, could we use the term the cancer industry in general? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's obviously a lot, this is very emotively charged. There's a lot of dialogue around this uh, on, on both sides of the fence, you know, yeah. uh, that, that, um, but I think when you're inside this and, and connected to a care team, I, I, I'd like to believe that you encounter just incredibly caring human beings who want the absolute best for you. Yeah, way more than I had expected. Both my wife and I had a very, um, at the time, we thought we had this healthy suspicion that Western medicine was out to get us. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of legitimacy to that argument. And I, yep. I I inherently believe that there are certain aspects 
that one could build a, a compelling argument for that, you know? Um, so yeah, I, I like I, the way you phrased that, that one could build a compelling argument for that. Yes. Rather than, rather than creating like a black and white diagnosis, because I, I really believe there's nuance and subtlety in this discussion. And just about in any system that we create, there's this inevitability that, you know, there will be those players or actors who get into the system who look to capitalize or to take advantage of it. But I don't believe it means the system as a whole is inherently evil. Exactly. And that for me was revealing especially with the way they started talking to me. And I inherent, I just started feeling like, wow, these people really do care. And so it was a person, person to person experience daily, hourly, where I just kept feeling like, you know what, I'm in their hands and I feel totally taken care of. And I'm just going to go with what they say. Uh, but I will also ask questions, you know, because mm -hmm. I am a human being and I, you know, I'm naive you're about curious and you're free I want to understand, and, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and your questions were never, never treated with like, you know, shut up, don't ask questions, no. which is, you know, that's a fear-based response when somebody feels as though their authority is being threatened. And it's, it's so interesting hearing this because it really, in, in, in my world, in terms of coaching, this is how I work with people is a very collaborative approach, yes. uh, a lot of permission-based language. Because I want people's buy-in. I want them on board. I want them to trust what we're doing. I want them to know that, like, I have their best interests at heart. So hearing this, you know, I really think this is an example of, of what the medical model that we have could be and could look like. Um, mm -hmm. Although I think under, you know, and I don't want to dive too much into the medical system because I want to tell more of your story. But I, I really appreciate sharing, getting sort of this inside look at it as well. And so they tell you that they're going to give you, like, the strongest protocol they have available for leukemia in terms of, of chemotherapy. And yeah. did, did you end up uh, moving forward with that protocol? I did. Um, so, you know, I went through it. It was, they called it an induction consolidation chemotherapy protocol, which basically means you get slammed with the strongest chemo drugs for the first 10 days, both of them coursing through your blood for basically 24 seven. And um, one of them, they actually have a nickname for it called the, um, the red devil <laughs> and they walk in when they walk in with it, they're walking with these bags in and they're in what looks like spacesuits. Yeah. So my yeah. first thought was, Oh wow. This stuff is strong. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're about to drip this into, into my bloodstream. Exactly. So it was, it was intimidating, but I will say that when I had that mantra, I was just like, you know what, I'm going to just go with this and having that, as well as the uh, the peacock sort of guiding me along the way. Um, you know, they tell you all these things. They tell you you're going to lose your hair. You're going to have a lot of fatigue. You're going to um, you're going to lose your taste. You're going to lose your smell, um, and you're going to lose weight. And I definitely did have a lot of fatigue, and I lost my hair, but I gained thirty pounds during my chemotherapy. And uh, they were quite surprised by that because <laughs> I couldn't yeah. stop eating. I mean, I just was like this I, and I never lost my taste or smell. So yeah. it, who knows what was going on there, but um, I certainly well, didn't have any issues with food. Yeah. Cause words are powerful and, and suggestiveness. Like, I mean, this is why in scientific research, we have to account for the placebo effect, which totally. can be very, very significant. That alone is like testament to how powerful our mind is and how much it can have an influence on our overall health. This isn't to say, you know, just by the power of the mind that I can totally heal myself of all illness or things like that, but that it certainly is an integral player. And so 
you know, I think as, as professional professionals in this field, we have to be thoughtful about the words we use when saying to someone, when we're in a position of authority saying, this is going to happen to you versus, Hey, this is a possibility. You know, don't want you to, you know, and so on. But uh, somehow you didn't lose your appetite and you kept, you kept your strength up and you kept uh, eating along the way. I and did. You, yeah. And I would say that I think my ace in the hole with this whole process, and I haven't mentioned this yet, but was um, my wife. Um, yeah. Because she also has her own compelling story, but she had healed herself um, holistically from multiple sclerosis and had been in benign status for 13 years. And so my thought was, Hey, she can do it. So can I. So yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> that was huge to have that support and to know that I had a partner that had mm -hmm, what mm -hmm. is considered a chronic condition. And she's been in benign status for close to 13 years with no drugs and yeah. no symptoms whatsoever. And she's done it in her own way. And, yeah. um, and because of my experience, mm -hmm. she began to collaborate with the doctors, her own doctors more and more and more so that they began to become cheerleaders for her. So yeah, yeah, really amazing. which is beautiful. I mean, I have a second project called the Deep Health Academy, and this is one of the mm -hmm. things that we want to work towards is improving, uh, really empowering people to become participants in their health instead of just patients who sort of blindly accept diagnoses or feel, oh, you know, it's not that we try to take over expert status from an expert, but rather it's like you, you recognize that we are allowed to be empowered participants in this and, you know, asking questions and, and and having thoughts and opinions and fears and concerns and so on is a natural part of the process and not one that should be brushed aside. It's so true. And I really do think that the Western world, you know, I think they can be, they're very good at diagnosis mm -hmm. um, where I think that they can fall down a little bit is in prognoses. Yes. And I think that that can be a very, that can be a deadly uh, weapon sometimes to our psyche and to our emotions. And I yeah. think that the, what, in that realm, they can, we can probably give them some tips. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so you're, you're going down the road of chemotherapy. Um, about how long was the protocol or the treatment? So the process is that first induction process where it's 10 days, they then yeah. hold me in the hospital for another three and a half weeks while my blood is regenerated. They'll assist with the red blood cells and they'll assist with the platelets but they want the white blood cells to be built up by the body itself. So is this like via transfusion or? So they transfuse a lot of red blood cells and platelets, but they don't do that with the white blood cells. They really are. The hope on their part is that my body, it will be strong enough to generate white blood cells. So they're watching to make sure that they can get back to a certain level. And it took about three and a half weeks after those first 10 days of the chemo that I could actually go home but they wouldn't allow me to go home until they knew that Jana, my wife, had basically kept our place like clean as a whistle, uh, just because the exposure right. to any any kind of bacteria or dirt or anything like that, you know, could really cause me to get an infection. Yeah, and and it would probably be much more serious because your immune system had been depleted by this. So for those yeah. who might be who might be listening, who who maybe have heard leukemia, they might have heard the term, they might even know that it's like a kind of sort of a blood cancer. But I believe it's probably an umbrella term because maybe there's different areas yes. of the blood that can be affected by this. And so, so I wanted you, what I wanted to share about that 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 that's been a learning curve for me in the sense that I had what was called acute myeloid leukemia, which tends to be the most dramatic 
um, where they want you in the hospital like now and they yes. want to treat you as soon as possible if your body is healthy enough, which mine was. I was considered young. Mm -hmm. um, it's usually the elderly or the very young that get this kind of leukemia. Um, and they go. They usually prescribe um, heavy chemo for if your cell structure, if your blood cell structure is, falls in the normal range. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't, then it will likely require radioactive treatments or stem cell therapy of that kind. So it can be much more of a longer process in recovery. I was lucky enough where I didn't have to do that. Um, then there's another type of acute leukemia, which uses slightly different um, chemotherapy. Then there's also two different types of chronic leukemia where you live with it, but it's managed with either stem cell therapy or other types of drugs or even chemo once in a while and ra or radiation right. or a mixture of all three. Right, so, right. And so the goal of the chemotherapy is, what is it targeting in this case? It's basically, I mean, it's designed to target the cancerous cells in your blood. But right. as we all know, chemo is, it's its kind of like a, I call it like a, um, the Hessian soldiers of the American Revolution, they'll kill anybody. Um, right. So they, they, they're just in, inherently killing machines, so to speak. Yes. Um, yeah. I'm sure, you know, over the years, I would think like they get more and more refined, but ultimately, you know, to, to try to get something that is like so like specific that you can target only this one type of cell. I mean, we hear about this and I think those who, who maybe haven't been involved in the world of science and scientific research, oh, they should just figure this out. And it's never, never quite so simple as that. This is an extremely challenging process to, to do. Um, so you, you had this induction phase and then did you have sort of ongoing periodic treatments? Yeah. Then there was a consolidation phase where they, I actually was in remission after that first month, but okay. they had me come back yeah. and what they're, what they want to do is they want to hit me with twice the amount of chemo that I got initially in half the time. And then they held me in again. And what they're doing is, is that they're basically hitting the blood not just once, but then they have me come back again, twice, and then again, third time, and then again, fourth time. So it's their way of saying, we're going to go and get this at the microscopic level, and we're going to ensure right. that nothing will come back. And so that's the hope is that by utilizing this type of consolidation chemotherapy over and over again, we're ensuring that the body is not going to regenerate any kind of cancerous cells within the blood. So you, you, you know, this treatment is supposed to like hunt down basically every last cancerous cell. And of yeah. course, al along the way, um, unfortunately there's, there's uh, collateral damage. I think that's what I was looking for. Yes. There's some, there's some, or maybe fairly significant collateral damage. So uh, this went on, this sort of treatment regimen went on un until what point or how long was it before they declared that you were in remission? Well, it went on until the first week of August. Um, and then I went back into the hospital because I was having these tiny little fevers and infections um, that just happened along the way. And they did assure me that this is normal. So I did get an infection after the last treatment. So I went back in the hospital for another two weeks um, just to rehab and what they watched over me until I recovered. And then it took about another year um, of my blood levels getting back to the normal level. Um, and in the meantime, I was, you know, just working out very slowly 
but right. first long walks and then short runs. And- right. Yeah. So you're, you're living in sort of a, a delicate sort of immunocompromised state where you can function, but you have to be a lot more thoughtful about it. Yeah. So, so the active treatment phase lasted how, how many months? So it went from April, May, June, July. So it was four months. Okay. Yeah. And so they, they started out with this, like you only have weeks to live because this is, has progressed as far as it has. Yeah. When did they start to change the, or did they, and if so, like when did they start to change their tune and go, you know what, we're seeing something positive or hopeful here. They actually never changed their tune. They always said that I would be well. Um, they didn't tell me that I would had only had weeks left to live until about a year later. Okay. Yeah. Which I really appreciated. Absolutely. Now, they, they told <laughs> Jana just whispered to me and she said, but they didn't, they told me, they didn't tell you. <laughs> so okay. they shared that information with Jana. So that, that I only had weeks left to live and that this is really the only option that we could do is to, is to go through the chemotherapy. Right. Right. That's, that's they, yeah. But they were what they wanted to also say was is that he's a very healthy individual and we think that he's got a good chance. So right, um, yeah. And it was interesting because they prescribed the chemotherapy. I started on it, and on the third day, I actually got all of my uh, blood results back because they really wanted they want to get the chemo going. Yes, yeah. They don't want to wait. Yeah. So the blood test came back and. I was in my room and all of a sudden I heard what sounded like a party breaking out in front of outside my door. And finally one of the resident nurses came in and said, your cytogenetics are, are normal. And I'm like, what does that mean? (laughs) And what (laughs) they were trying to say is, is that my blood cell structure uh, was in the normal range. And they just basically were saying, you'll only need the chemotherapy. You're not going to be having to be right. Okay. Any other kind of work. So yeah. that was that was quite reassuring, and I had no idea the emotional investment that all the nurses were about yeah, me. It man. was really quite heartwarming to be. Uh, to be absolutely, yeah, that's incredibly touching. And so, so through all of this, you're going on an emotional journey as well. I mean, you can't mm-hmm. go through something like this and not have your your life sort of dramatically changed as you ponder your mortality. You ponder like, am, am I, you know, because even if they didn't. Speak specify was it were you thinking like huh this you know i don't know how this ends or or what what were you sort of thinking as you were going through this this is a great question and you know people are surprised at my response but my response was um that mantra deeply resonated with me and um my feeling was to just really be joyful and grateful for being alive um, because we really don't know when we're going to go. Yeah. I mean, we honest, I mean, to be really honest, we never know. We could walk yeah. out the door and get hit by a car. Yeah. So for me, being treated hand and foot every day was like being in a five-star hotel. Now, most chemo patients would never say something like that, but that's the experience that I had. I mean, it was really quite engaging and yeah. kind of yeah. nice to have people like, at your beck and call all the time. And I also had a commitment that, you know, people would get as much value that I was getting from them by them taking care of me. I wanted them to know how much it, I appreciated that. So yeah. I was doing everything I could to generate as much back as I was receiving. And Jana had, in the meantime, was in, basically inviting hundreds of people 
to the hospital. She, in fact, compiled a list of 987 people. These were all the people that we could remember in all of our lives from our past and everything. So I was getting emails. I was getting letters. I was getting cards. I was getting food. I was getting visitors. So it was really quite inspiring and fun um, and exhausting. But yeah, you know, yeah, mostly exhausting, worth, but yeah, it was worth the exhaustion for me. I mean, it was yeah. worth it every time. It was really kind of cute to have all these visitors coming in. And my one of my uncles, you know, came back from one, visiting me and told my mom, his sister, he said, you know, I went in there to cheer him up and I walked out there, you know, like I was on <laughs> cloud nine, you know, yeah. so it was yeah. really great. I mean, that made me feel like, okay, maybe I am giving something back and they're experiencing that. So it was kind of yeah. cute. Yeah. yeah, that that's really powerful. And so um, we'll fast forward a little bit here. So you, you've, um, what, what at what point um, from the time you got a diagnosis, we're looking at the timeline, did you get sort of diagnosed that you're in remission or as far as we can tell, you're cancer free? When did, when did that come along or is it, are you still being monitored? So I'm not officially in remission um, until five years after um, the final day of chemo. So mm -hmm. yeah. You know, my official day would be July 31st of this year, but okay. it's, it's kind of nice to have a doctor who said to me, you're in remission. He goes, I'm not supposed to say that, but you know, for all intents comfortable. and purposes, what, what we're yeah. seeing here. Yeah. And that that's in the scientific realm. And yes. I think that for me personally, I'm psychologically, I'm fine. You know, yes. I, yeah. I feel great. I've been running, I've been working out and I feel great. You know, my cats are happy that I'm around. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So what did you do then to uh, sort of rebuild your health after this? And then you also changed direction as well, if I understand right. I did. You're no, lo you're no longer in the chimney sweep industry. No, I'm not. And I'm actually writing and I completed my book. Um, in fact, um, I have my book right here. Let me just grab it for you. Yeah. So we're looking for a copy of, uh, was it Pe Poison Peacocks? Peacocks, Poison, and Leukemia, A Life of Vibrant Health. There we yeah. go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that became the the sort of part of my, it, I actually feel that writing was a part of the healing process for me. Yeah, very cathartic, producing language, expressing our experience, being heard, being validated, but just not keeping it kind of trapped in your head. I think this is why even something like journaling, it can be really powerful for people just, just expressing what they're experiencing. There's like a, a, maybe an emotional release that comes from doing this. It was huge. I mean, the, the emotional release for me was getting over my whole barrier that I put up for myself that I could never be like my father or my mother. So it yeah. was a big deal to get finally put the pen to paper. And a lot of it came from my mom. My mom was visiting me twice a week. She's like, oh, just get over it, Dan. Write the damn book, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so this is really, because I think you, your parents, um, if they're art artistic and creative, I imagine they would have supported you had you pursued this endeavor. Or was there any reason why they would have discouraged you because they thought maybe it'd be difficult to make a go of it? No, they were very supportive. I mean, okay. they, they were like, you should just do it, you know? But I mean, in my head, I'm like, I'm never going to be like them. I'm never going to be as good as them. It's just like, it doesn't matter. Get the story down. Yeah. You know, yeah. you want to, this is, and I had to get out of the idea that it had something to do with me. Right, right, right. And I realized that this is, I had to come from a different place to get the words on paper. And I realized that the where, where I had to come from was really to, you know, surround people with love and let people know that, you know, having in, being inspired and having hope um, 
really provides a different context or a different arena that one can come from when they hear the word cancer. Because yeah. hearing the word cancer for as human beings, we we go we go into spaces that you know we didn't think we would, but it is literally if we can look at it honestly, it's a metaphor. It's, yeah, all words are metaphors. To be honest with you, as human beings, we put language to things to better understand it. They give ourselves some normality, like we're common. Yeah, everybody else. So we have to recognize that we're making up words to to make us understand each other and to yeah. recognize that we're all humans and that we're all on this planet just trying to make life a little bit better for everyone. Just just trying to make it go. You know, this is what I I think I came to this conclusion. My wife and I spent a number of years traveling and living in foreign countries and, mm-hmm. and going around the world. And, you know, we said at the end of the day, most people just want to make a living, provide for their family, have healthy relationships, food to eat, shelter, clothes to wear. Like we're really all working towards a common goal. And yet somehow we seem to be conditioned to treat each other like a threat to our very existence, you know, whether it's, you know, within, within nation states or countries and so on and so forth. And so it can be a real, a real challenge to adopt this, this kind of mindset. So, so you wrote the book, uh, Peacock's Poison and Leukemia. And uh, what, when did that book release? I, it literally just released in fe- February. Okay. Uh, yeah. So it w- it took a while, but hot, COVID, hot off the press. Yes. COVID sort of helped that. Mm. So, you know, uh, it gave us a lot of downtime and yeah. uh, I was, we were, both my wife and I, my wife actually came out with her book too, but yeah. it was really, um, it was a great opportunity actually. In some ways, I think there were some wonderful side, good side effects that occurred as a result of COVID. Um, Absolutely. So yeah. It, yeah. It was obviously a difficult time for people to go through. And, and I think there's a lot of undocumented things that we're going to discover looking back, whether it's mental health, whether it's abuse, whether it's, it's just psychological issues, things like that. You know, I, I went into this very grateful that I do run an online business, which allowed me to, I mean, I was already working from home anyways, and mm. allowed me just to continue to, to provide for myself um, through a really, really difficult time. But I think we're going to look back and we're, we're going to realize that like, boy, we really need that human connection. We, we really need to be connected to other people. And, uh, you know, I, I'd be kind of curious what your thoughts are. You it's know, part of, it's part of my book, actually. Yeah. You know, the idea of community was a huge factor in my own health. And I think that it's really a huge factor in the health of everyone. Mm. Uh, you know, had it, you, had you gone through your cancer experience during, you know, COVID times, where there was such restriction on physical human connection, you know, how do you, how do you envision that might, I know we're obviously we're just speculating at this point, but how do you envision it being different compared to what you were able to receive you know, prior to that? That's a good question. Um, you know, external factors are always have some kind of impact in some way, shape or form. Um, and I do think that, you know, being restricted, and not having visitors available for my during my time in the hospital, I think would have extended my time in the hospital. Not mm, having yeah. visitors, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I think that <clears throat> so, it's likely that that would have been the, the resulting uh, factors. Uh, yeah, that would have caused that. Yeah. And so, in in addition to your book, you 
also are a life coach. Is that correct? Yep. I'm developing myself as a coach and as a um, doing online workshops. So that Fantastic. that's our next step. We're literally in the development phase right now. So okay, um, that's that's exciting because uh, I mean I, I also love building businesses. I think it's really neat watching them develop, um, especially when it's it's one that creates such a positive impact in people's lives. Um, and so obviously having having gone through your your cancer experience um did your did your company or employment were you, were you still employed in the, the chimney sweep industry when you first got your diagnosis i was i was first i was um employed um and then i because i was out for so long um they eventually had to let me go because it was a small mm. very small company and right, they really yeah. couldn't they they didn't have the ability to to sustain me or keep me on the, on the books. So, yeah. And yeah. I think it was in the best interest to just move on and to really pursue myself as a writer and speaker and coach. So it, 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 it was for the best for everyone. I think. Yeah. And, and, and if I may ask, like, did this put you in a difficult spot financially for a period of time, having to sort of navigate this? Cause we understand that healthcare in and of itself can also be quite a costly venture, especially in the United States. Um, well, that was certainly what I was thinking that was going to happen. Um, but luckily, uh, because I was diagnosed with leukemia, I was immediately considered disabled in the state of Massachusetts. So I was okay. able to receive disability um, as well as um, Jana rallied the troops and we, we started receiving incredible amounts of donations from people. So it was the work she did replaced my salary. Um, which so is pretty amazing. That's so, so heart, heartwarming to hear. And, um, I think this also speaks to the importance of having social programs. Totally. Because here you are today and you know, you're, you're an author with an inspiring story as well as you're going to go in and be doing some, I think very important work. I think, I, you know, I imagine there's like probably even a niche market for working specifically with those who are, you know, cancer survivors, cancer um, oh, I don't want to say companions, kind of the wrong word, but people who, who live with someone who's, whose life has been affected one way or another by cancer, like there's, because so many people's lives are touched by this, you know, and, and so, but you're able to do this because there was that, that safety net in place. But I think also you're not the type of individual who, um, I, I think would have wanted to just take advantage of the system, so to speak. You took what you needed and you've used it as an opportunity to now move into what you're doing here and now. Absolutely. And it, I'm no expert when it comes to online stuff. So I'm still learning and, you know, yeah. we're still trying to figure it all out. So it's, it's a little nip and tuck, but you know, it, we're working it out and it's all working out. And I, but it does point to the importance of social programs and social networking mm -hmm. and really Absolutely. using and having, I think more than anything else, it's having access to all of that and knowing it's available and really finding the people that can educate you on that and yeah. tell you how to use it. Because if you don't know it and you don't know it exists, it's one thing to have them, but it's another thing to actually know that you can use them and know them, know that they're there. So Absolutely. that, that was a key ingredient. And it was wonderful that there was a financial office within the hospital that we were serving that basically guided us and guided me um, and it was wonderful. The words that she gave me, she came into my room and she said, you need to just take care of yourself and get right. Yeah. We're going to take care of the financial part. She goes, you're going on disability. 
that means that the, yeah, yeah. the health insurance, you don't have to think about the state of Massachusetts is going to take care of you with. The That's amazing. Insurance. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And it's not true for all states, you know, all the states it's different. So yeah. Yeah. I'm grateful about. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Man, that's incredible. You've got such a such a good, a positive outlook through all of this. And I think it's very, very inspiring just how encouraged you you have been through this entire experience, not letting it drag you down. And so uh, really just to, to, to wrap up here, if there's some final words of wisdom that you, you could just share with people who might be going through a difficult experience, you know, what, what was something that helped you and guided you? Um, I would say that there's a quote um, by St. John of the Cross. He was this mystic in the Christian world. Uh, and he wrote some beautiful poetry. And he wrote these words when he was jailed um, during the Spanish Inquisition. And he was in solitude, confinement. And a jailer was compassionate and gave him pen and paper. And he wrote these words. And the words were, a generous heart will never care to go part way if there is passage somewhere. And with faith soaring like a cloud, it feeds on something I don't know, that one may come on randomly. So I think that we have to really give ourselves the grace and the gratitude, knowing that, you know, humanity and the world is not out to get us. And that we have yeah. to give, give some trust and trust yourself. I love that. That's a beautiful note to wrap up on. Humanity is not out to get us, you know. Yeah. There's so much beauty to be found in, in the human experience and you, you've you been witness to that and you're you're a contributor to it as well. So thank you so much for being generous with the time. Thank you for, for sharing your story. It's been a genuine inspiration. John, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Great words and just really had a lot of fun. Thank you so much for tuning in to Between the Before and After. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like, share, subscribe, or leave a review because that helps this podcast to reach and inspire more people. I love exploring the stories that take place between the before and after, the powerful experiences that shape who we become, and I love human potential. I love the possibilities that lie within us. So whatever you may be up against, I hope these stories inspire you, because if you're still here, your story's not done yet, so keep moving forward. Anyone can come from any place of brokenness and destitution and build an amazing life.